0: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast which brings the global economy to you. Now you've probably heard a few things about Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro. He's a controversial right-wing populist who once said he could never love a gay son. He's also a big fan of Donald Trump's. They swapped football jerseys when Bolsonaro came to the White House in March. But I'd be interested to know whether they talked about economics on that visit, because when it comes to trade and the economy, the Brazilian president couldn't be more different. Now Bolsonaro admits he's no expert, but he's handed the task of turning around Brazil's anemic economy to Paulo Guedes, an alumnus of the Free Market University of Chicago. Now, Chicago-style reforms were all the rage after the so-called Chicago Boys helped transform Chile's economy in the 70s and 80s. But they've fallen out of favour in the last few years with all the questioning of neoliberal economic policies we've seen in the wake of the global financial crisis. Looking at Brazil, thinking about its decades of boom and bust, a bit of shock treatment doesn't sound such a crazy idea. I'll ask Larry Summers what he thinks of Gete's plans in a few minutes. But first, Brazil economy reporter Bruce Douglas has been taking a closer look.
1: There's an awful lot of coffee in Brazil, as Frank Sinatra once noted, and beef, and soybeans, and all other kinds of agricultural goods and petrochemical products. But decades of protectionism and a massive internal market, boosted by membership of South America's customs union, has resulted in a remarkably closed economy. Foreign trade accounts for a measly 24% of Brazil's GDP, compared with a global average of 71%. But as the country's new government came to power, promising to change all that, I went to Santos, Brazil's gateway to the world, to find out how. I'm perched on a yellow boat that's floating in the port of Santos, just in front of a huge black ship, which is being loaded with sugar around 10% of the world's sugar passes through this port. Santos is just 40 miles from the city of Sao Paulo and lies on the front line of Brazil's efforts to open its economy to the world. It's the largest port in South America and Santos handles around one-third of Brazil's foreign trade, including much of the world's coffee, orange juice and sugar. OK, and though. Uh, please, can you tell me your name and your title and where we are?
2: Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Celia Regina de Souza. I'm a journalist of CODESP, uh, the Port Authority of Port of Santos.
1: So, Celia, tell me a little bit about the Port of Santos.
2: The Port of Santos has around 14 kilometers
3: of keys, enough for 55 ships. Today, we handle all kinds of cargo, paper, cellulose, soybeans, sugar, wheat, chemical products, petroleum derivatives, and
2: alcohol.
1: Goods have flowed in and out of Santos for almost 500 years. It's the gateway to Greater Sao Paulo, the most industrialized region in the Southern Hemisphere and the biggest consumer market in Latin America. The container terminal of South America is in Brazil. With intelligence and in logistics and efficiency. BTP is the biggest privately owned terminal in the port. After showing me its corporate video, Natalia Namura, BTP's commercial manager, gave me a tour.
2: So basically where you're standing right now used to be a garbage repository where all the trash would be, uh, how to say, dispatched from the port of Santos. And it was two years of remediation...
1: Built on the site of a former trash dump, the BTP terminal now boasts eight state-of-the-art cranes that were loading containers onto two massive ships as we stood talking.
2: Uh, Coffee, meat, and this is going to the US probably with lots of uh, construction material.
1: How does the performance of Brazil's economy as a whole impact the number of containers that pass through here?
2: Oh, there is a direct impact. So basically if uh, the country is importing more, as it was the case of uh, last year, we get a higher volume of imports. Whereas now the exports are a little bit still picking up. Our volume, container volume exports are slower as well
1: predictions for this year's growth are a little bit better than last year so you're hoping that that will mean more containers will pass through this year.
2: We are expecting bigger volumes this year. And of course uh, the exchange rate or the political situation also have an impact on the volume. So we're expecting all the best for Brazil this year. All the economy is picking up. Hopefully our volumes are picking up as well.
1: Since Brazil's economy dropped off a cliff between 2014 and 2016, the country has barely returned to growth. Boosting foreign trade would obviously help its recovery. And here, there's massive room for improvement.
3: In any typical operation, if you have 100 spaces, you want to
1: sell 100 spaces. Antonio Dominguez is the managing director on the east coast of Latin America for the shipping and logistics conglomerate, Maersk.
3: In Brazil, if you only sell 100, you will receive 60 or 50. So half half of your cargo will not show up at the port.
1: Why? Why won't the cargo show up?
3: Because the customer will tell us, you know, I was unable to find uh, a trucker. I couldn't get all the documentation on time. I was stuck on inspections, so the cargo will not arrive to the port. So here in Brazil, we have been forced to uh, overbook every single vessel, sometimes as much as 300%, to be able to sail at 100%. So that, that creates a lot of uh, challenges for us.
1: MES, distinctive white containers, feature prominently around the port of Santos, one of the 17 ports the company uses in Brazil. Despite its strong presence in the country, Mr. Dominguez points out that Brazil remains a challenging place to do business. And while he welcomes the new government's talk of privatization and free trade, state dominance and protectionism are not the only issues Paulo Guedes will have to address.
3: We love Brazil. We see Brazil as a land of opportunities. But it's also a country that uh, needs to understand that infrastructure is key for development. And it's not only about building new ports. It's about making sure that you connect the port with the, with, the, with the consumer centres, where the population is. So you need railways, you need roads, you need infrastructure at the beginning and at the end to make sure that they are
1: able to, to
3: move that cargo.
1: And it's not just about improving the infrastructure.
3: Brazil will have to look at the, the tariff. There are very high tariffs here in this country to imports. Uh, the customs systems, it will have to be revamped. It has to be easier to be able to bring cargo into the country. Uh, The taxes in the country are highly unpredictable. You know, it can vary a lot from one commodity to the next, and and there are not many uh, good ideas why they they are varying. So the legal systems I think, is overburned in this country. You know, you have a lot of uh, hurdles that you need to to actually look through, so that that also needs to be simplified. Uh, All in all, the procedures to set up a company needs to be easier.
1: The sprawling megalopolis of Sao Paulo is the engine room of Brazil's economy. If Latin America's largest nation is to start motoring again, here is where it will start. Tomás Zanotto is the head director of trade and foreign affairs at Fiespi, the Federation of Industry of the State of Sao Paulo.
4: Opening of Brazilian... Uh, the government was voted into office with this promise, so it's something the Brazilians vote for. For. So it has a mandate to do this. One thing is saying what you want to do. The other thing is saying how we are going to get there. Uh, right now, what the, the, I, I would say that the p- biggest single problem that Brazil has is unemployment. So opening the economy without doing the other reforms means more unemployment.
1: Around 12% of the country's workforce is still out of a job. And Mr. Zanotto fears that lowering trade tariffs without simplifying the tax system and liberalizing the labor market could make matters worse. Among investors, analysts and economists, there's also a consensus that the first priority of the new government needs to be an overhaul of Brazil's massively overstretched pension system.
4: It's a little bit like the Titanic. I mean, you're going against an iceberg and the pension reforms is that movement at the, at the helm that shows that we are not
1: hitting the iceberg anymore. With imminent disaster averted, the administration can then concentrate on opening the economy. But ensuring that such a move is a success will require skillful coordination between all branches of government. Opening the economy depends only on one ministry.
4: Uh, having a better business environment depends on other ministries and the rest of the government, and also Congress. So, so one thing is a given; the other is something we have to fight. I understand that when you when you pay attention to what what Minister Paulo Guedes says. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, and and, uh, and and this is why you have this kind of bullish environment or expectations. Um, but you know. Any professor in strategy on a business school will tell you that it's good, good strategy is 10% elaboration and 90% implementation.
1: Has Brazil ever attempted to liberalize before? Uh, it it did, uh, it did something like that in um,
4: 89, 90, and it was a disaster because it just opened the economy without and was not able to, to, to push through the other reforms. So so we had hyperinflation, employment was, was such a disaster that in the last 28
1: years nobody talked about this. With a massive internal market, Brazil has long seen little reason to open its economy to the world. But with the country well on the way to another lost decade, there's a feeling that this time it may be worth the risk. What are the potential dangers or pitfalls of a more liberal Brazil? Look what's happening outside of
4: Brazil. I don't know if you're British or not, but seeing Brexit, seeing Donald Trump, um, they are the result of, at the end of the day, mainly Lehman Brothers crises and very liberal economy. So. So we have, uh, I I mean, you have very good examples of the pitfalls that you can have in a very liberal economy. Now, that said, Brazil is getting out of almost 70 years of state-driven economy, and it got us what it got. So we need, we need now... Maybe a neoliberal, old-style Chicago school for some time makes some sense for Brazil.
1: There's really no precedent for the rapid liberalisation of an economy the size of Brazil's. South Korea in the 1960s, or Chile's a decade or so later, offer few clues as to what's in store for Latin America's largest nation. But with Brazil still struggling to recover from years of recession, corruption and political conflict, This new government argues that it has no choice but to find out.
0: That was Bruce Douglas. Now, you might remember I spoke to Larry Summers last week, the Harvard economist and former Treasury Secretary and advisor to President Obama. I took the opportunity to ask him about what was going on in Brazil and also about the radical left-wing prescriptions for the economy recently coming out of the U.S., Without getting into the details, Larry, I'm sort of interested, you had so many years when you were chief economist at the World Bank, and then were you at the Treasury and helping Mexico with its debt crises. Uh, How should we think about this kind of quite old style, if you like, pro-market recipe coming to Brazil at a time when sort of that kind of model of market policy is being so questioned elsewhere in the world and, you know, not least in the U.S.?
5: Not an expert on the Brazilian situation, but it seems to me that a large part of credit has been allocated by government in Brazil, with vast misallocation of capital, very substantial uh, corruption, levels of real interest rates that, for most of the last decade, were six percent or more. Real interest rates that are unlike anything we saw in. The United States, because of the very large uh, government role in credit markets, I think the instinct to clean that up is probably the right instinct. I think the instinct to have pensions that are not unreasonably generous relative to people's final incomes, to be in line with the rest of the world in terms of the scale of your pensions relative to the scale of your economy, That feels like a reasonable urge to pursue in Brazil. So I think that broadly, um, you can't judge which way an economy should move without knowing where it is. And Brazil, after eight years of really quite extreme, 12 years of quite extreme, quite leftist government really had become a very much a state-controlled uh, economy with a state that was not really highly competent or able to act with uh, complete integrity. And so I think the direction of reform that uh, the Bolsonaro administration wants to move in is broadly correct. And as I say that as someone who is very much aware of the similarities between Bolsonaro and Donald Trump on many different dimensions, and certainly doesn't hold a brief uh, for either. I mean, what is interesting
0: is that you have two two of the most important economies in Latin America have now got new presidents who represent a completely different approaches. And Mexico is somewhere that has had years of reform and is in a very different place uh, in terms of the degree of liberalization in its economy. I mean, I guess, can you can you sympathize there with the idea that uh, there's a government that now wants to have more focus on what you might call the left behind?
5: I can sympathize with the desire to focus on the left behind. And I think that income distribution and Oligarchy have been real issues in Mexico for a long time. Not sure I can sympathize quite as well with the idea of keeping the private sector out of sectors like oil and telecommunications. Not sure I can sympathize quite as much with the more cavalier approach that sometimes seems to be taken in Mexico on issues relating to property rights. Or enforcement of contracts, but I think the emphasis on investing in people, on education, on kids, I think that's all quite appropriate.
0: I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, We've had several years of you contributing debates about macro policy and you're very much associated with the view that we should be changing our attitude to fiscal policy and particularly in the event of another downturn. We should have a different approach to ha- to the sort of sustainability of, of uh, fiscal uh, stimulus and we should expect to rely more on fiscal policy down the road because of this situation of very low interest rates and the fact that monetary policy is going to be constrained. And the surprise comes from people who've heard all of that and then hear you so vigorously condemning the proposals of the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who is also associated with, uh, sort of, in a sense, talk of, of of fiscal stimulus and fiscal activism. Why is it so important to you to draw a distinction between those kind of radical Democrat proposals and what you've been talking about over the last few years?
5: I think it's a fair, uh, fair question, uh, Stephanie. Uh, as I hear the uh, proposals that come from the so-called modern monetary uh, theorists, uh, there seems to be an implication that you can do whatever you want uh, with fiscal policy if you're just willing in some appropriate way to uh, print money. You know, the analogy I like to use is with um, incentives and supply-side economics. There was a Valid recognition in the late 1970s that in addition to their demand effects, taxes had um, incentive effects on how much people wanted to work and save and invest and so forth. And that was an important insight. But then it became um, a claim that tax cuts would pay for themselves, which was completely irresponsible with the Laffer curve. And I think I feel the same way about modern monetary uh, theory, that it takes a valid idea that in a low interest rate environment, more expansionary fiscal policy than we would have previously thought was appropriate, um, is appropriate, and turns it into an absurd free lunch kind of idea that we don't need to think about uh, budget constraints.
0: But in this environment, if we have a prolonged period of super low interest rates, it is the case that we could be less concerned about models. I think
5: I've been very very clear that uh, just as people can afford to buy a more expensive house when uh, interest rates are low than when interest rates are high, the government can afford to run a larger deficit and run up more debt when interest rates are low than when interest rates are high. But that doesn't remove the obligation to budget and plan and make choices. And the problematic aspect of at least much of the advocacy of modern monetary theory is the suggestion that you somehow don't have to make uh, choices and you don't have to plan in careful ways around your budget. And I do think that's an irresponsible idea.
0: Now, I just have time to give you one more piece of news, and that's the announcement of the not-at-all-coveted prize of Most Miserable Economy of the Year for 2018, as measured in the latest Bloomberg Misery Index. Now, Katarina Sariva is an economic data editor in the Global Economic Surveys team for Bloomberg and she put this year's index together along with our Southeast Asia economy reporter Michelle Jamrisco. Katarina's here with me now, Katarina. Tell me how this index is compiled and who's top of the list, who's most miserable for this year?
6: Hi, yes. So our misery index is the classic combination of a country's unemployment rate and inflation rate. And in our Bloomberg index, we have 62 countries for which we have um, a good amount of private sector estimates. So we're talking about banks, academic institutions, research institutions. And at the top of our list is Venezuela, uh, which will come uh, not as uh, not much of a surprise. Uh, and Venezuela this year has an eye-popping misery score of 8 million. Uh, and that is mostly due to its extremely high inflation.
0: I'd, I imagine that's an all-time record uh, misery. Yes, score. it
6: indeed it is. In, the,
0: in all the five years that we've been doing it, this.
6: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and our calculation of Venezuela's actual misery score for last year which is based on um, IMF data because the country has not published economic data in quite a while is at just about 930,000 so you can see that that is a substantial increase even over last year's.
0: So I guess this isn't a list uh, that you really do want to be top of you want to be bottom so so who is the which is the least miserable country this year?
6: Our least miserable country, and this has been um, all five years that we've done this index, is Thailand. They have kind of unique ways of, of calculating unemployment, so we don't like to focus too much on their position of, uh, in this list. When you,
0: when you say unique, you mean they just don't count all of them? Is that
6: yes? I think that's great. I'm, I'm not complete. I'm not. Uh, an expert in in the Thai economy, but um, they yeah, I think they don't quite count all of the people or, or perhaps there's a, a bit of a shadow job market as, as we see in, in quite a lot of countries.
0: So, what are the, we probably wouldn't think of Thailand as uh, the least miserable country or maybe even happiest country, but what are the other countries that appear low on this list?
6: So, we have uh, in our number two spot is Switzerland, um, and they've improved a bit over last year. Uh, We also have Singapore in the third spot. And then Japan, which I think also won't be too surprising to people as they have had uh, persistently low inflation. And and that's probably a country that's a good example of, um, you know, maybe this, this low number is not quite uh, a great thing.
0: I guess that's one of those things, probably the, the feature of this index is that it's not so bad at capturing misery. Um, because it's combining the inflation and the unemployment. And if you've got high numbers on both, you're not likely to be in a good state as an economy. But it probably doesn't doesn't really capture what's going on uh, further down the list because if you've got very low inflation, you might still be quite miserable or you certainly might have quite a slow growth, quite a stagnant economy.
6: Exactly, yeah. And that's been the story of the index this year because... Uh, We're seeing quite a lot of countries that have improved their score such as the US and the UK. But it's not necessarily a positive thing because both of these countries are battling pretty low inflation and and that's not a a great barometer of economic sentiment and just well-being because it it shows that the consumer is not uh, as confident as perhaps consumers should be in a healthy and strong economy.
0: And of course, we have the same old debates about whether or any of these measures—GDP, inflation, or anything—can really get to uh, what's going on in a country and where, and a real measures of, of well-being and whether people are satisfied with life. Yes, but I yes. do notice that um, you know certainly it's as as is traditional. There are a lot of. Uh, South American countries on this list. We don't just have Venezuela at the top with its extraordinary inflation rate. In 2018, it had a 929,000% inflation rate. Um, But you also have Argentina in the top 10. You've got Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil. Uh, So some things... uh, don't change.
6: Yeah, exactly, and Argentina has held on to that second spot for a while as well. It looked last year like things were improving a bit, but they're now in their second recession in three years, um, battling extremely high inflation, I mean, nowhere near Venezuela's of course, but in March it was at 55% year over year, I mean, that's a very high number and the government has just rolled out some price freezes, um, I think in part to try to make things a bit easier for the consumer there. I think the past year has been one of, of some issues in South America again, and, and it's, it's kind of sad because it's in countries that um, there, there seemed to be some good progress uh, going on with the economies um, in the past couple years, and that seems to have rolled back a bit especially for Argentina and Brazil.
0: In a year's time, we'll have you back and see whether all of these uh, reforms in Brazil have managed to take it off the top 10 slot. But Katerina Sariva, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insight into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Bruce Douglas. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamman, who's also the executive producer of stephanomics. Special thanks to Professor Larry Summers, Katerina Sariva, Raymond Collett and Simone Iglesias. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.